0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: This is the Gator Nation football podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James Devergilio. An
2: insane
1: asylum in the swamp. Oh, my. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs.
2: Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James De Virgilio. Alongside a special guest as co-host, Caleb Sturgis. One Alan Williams is out traveling Eastern Europe somewhere, and for the first time in this show's history, we'll have a new co-host, Caleb. Welcome to co-hosting. I know this is your first gig. How's it feel?
3: I'm really excited about it. Uh, you know, one thing I really love is college football. So getting to talk about it here for a little while is going to be a lot of fun.
2: So Caleb and I were texting last week, and Alan and I had been sort of vetting, if you will, uh, vetting co-hosts. And I thought, you know, Caleb is, is making some great
0: comments. Of all the sounds you'll hear this summer... This might be your new favorite. You're blending up the new chocolate chip iced cap at Tim Hortons. Real chocolate chips blended into an iced cap for a sweet summer treat. It's Tim Hortons' frozen take on a cappuccino, and it just might be the best sound of summer. Hurry into Tim Hortons for the new chocolate chip iced cap. Limited time at participating restaurants.
2: I think he'd be a great co host, and we talked about it from there, and here it he is. So, Caleb. It's been an interesting year for you. I know when you left you left Gainesville in the summer, uh you were sort of looking forward to having a great season, then you had an injury. Kind of catch people up on where you are this year and what it's been like in the life of Caleb Sturgis
3: yeah, it's been a tough year you know I was coming off a good year in Philadelphia. I really thought had my foot in the door and uh you know I was re- doing really well um you know I knew the team was going to be really good this year. I was really excited for the year and ended up suffering uh Pretty bad hip injury in the first game of the season, and uh, was put on injured reserve um, for you know at least eight weeks. So ever since then, I've really just been rehabbing and uh, trying to get healthy to play again. The tough thing about the NFL is there's only 32 uh, kicking jobs. So not not only are there there the 32 guys playing right now, but there's so many good kickers that aren't in the league. And you know Jake Elliott was on the practice squad for. Uh, the Bengals and he came in and has done a really great job Um, and and that's the tough thing about the NFL is when you give someone else a chance uh, you know they're going to do a good job so for me now it's just getting healthy and getting ready to play again and uh, getting back in to the NFL.
2: Yeah it's so interesting you came off a season last year with the Eagles where I think it was maybe one of I know you had some some franchise records and some best I think you maybe were the second Best kicker in the league, according to some metrics. And then uh, Elliott goes in there when you go down and he breaks a bunch of records, too. It seems like whatever's going on in Philly, people are kicking well there. But uh, let's transition this, Caleb, to, to what happened on the field that has not been well, which are, of course, your Florida Gators, my Florida Gators. We're not going to spend a lot of time breaking down the South Carolina game, as you listeners have, have figured out already. We sort of scrapped the, the film study and the breakdown of what went on. But we do want to talk about this game for a couple of reasons. One, it officially eliminates us really from bowl contention uh, for the large majority of any purpose. So that's not going to happen. And it seems like in this game, Caleb, there were some consistent narratives. One, our offense was terrible. And two, Will Muschamp sort of went into a shell and hung on for dear life and survived a win at the end, which we've also seen uh, when he was here. But what were your thoughts overall on that game? And does that game really mean anything uh, beyond just a win and loss on the record?
3: Yeah, well, to the individual players, it means a lot. And I think to some of the coaches that are really auditioning for jobs elsewhere, it means a lot. And uh, the one thing that's scary in games like that is a lot of players are looking towards either impressing the next coach or impressing scouts at the next level, and they start to do things beyond what their job assignment is. So maybe a defensive lineman will really try to get an extra sack by, you know, allowing allowing his gap to open and things like that. And that's what uh, is scary going into a game that really doesn't have that much uh, meaning as far as you know, really out of too much contention for any bowl that would be meaningful. Um, but I was impressed. Uh, that the team came out and they played really hard. Um, saying they deserved to win, I don't know. But they put up a, you know enough good plays to keep them in the game and really thought they, they played well overall, uh, all things considered. And, you know, you, you definitely saw some flashes of talent from younger guys that you can be excited about in years to come.
2: Yeah, we were down at least 25 scholarship players, which is very reminiscent of, of the Will Muschamp year when a similar thing happened. We went 4-8 and eight that year. We're on a, a eerily similar trajectory this year. And I thought the effort piece was what stuck out to me the most. We didn't win the game at this point in time. I've said in the past couple of weeks, winning and losing doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm sort of on to the next regime. But effort does, because like you mentioned, Caleb, plenty of these guys are going to be here next year. And there's a culture that you want to maintain. And Ben Shroop talked a lot about that, that this current team maybe hasn't recognized what it means to play for Florida. And I think you've seen some, some leadership out of a guy like David Reese. And I thought you saw the team fight really hard for four quarters, even though the game had a lot of bizarre twists and turns. I thought they really fought until the end and ultimately uh, a, a recurring problem that's been here for the past eight years. Just, just, unstable offense and quarterback play, you know, led to a, a drive at the end that really went nowhere and then sealed sealed our fate. So Caleb, you were on a team with Urban Meyer. That's that's who brought you here and then you went through the coaching transition to Will Muschamp. You mentioned a little bit of what it's like to play in a game when your coach isn't there and how the players are playing for reasons coaches are playing for different reasons. What is it like right now as a player? Uh one, the player who's leaving, what's his mindset like? And two, The player who's staying for next year and and are these players reading the same things that you and i are reading about all the rumors and what's going on
3: yeah of course you're reading the rumors because um you want to know are you going to fit into the scheme of the next guy that's coming in Um, i'm sure a lot of guys are thinking you know i came in under coach mac am i going to transfer there's usually a lot of that within the first year of a coach um, and then the guys that are seniors or juniors that are going to leave for the NFL, you know, they're at this point probably thinking, how do I stay healthy in these last few games? What can I put on tape that's going to make a difference uh, to scouts and uh, NFL coaches? And that, that's really their thought process. Um, and, and same with uh, you know, even the position coaches, really. I think there will probably be one or two coaches that get retained and and they're, um, you know, this is a time to show that under any circumstance they can coach and uh, have their players play for them.
2: What makes a good coach in your opinion? You've had the chance to work with guys like DJ Durkin. You do a lot of kicking camps. You certainly yourself are a cerebral guy. Uh, What do you think in your experience makes a good either college or pro football coach? Is there like a universal trait or thing you recognize early on that says, this guy is going to be good?
3: I think clearly there's a difference between college and NFL, and a lot of guys don't seamlessly go from college to NFL and are successful. And I think a lot of what makes you a great college coach is being able to recruit players and having players buy into something for a short period of time, where in the NFL you're being paid to play the game. So that's where your motivation – uh, comes from a lot of the time, and you know that your job depends on you know, your performance. So the NFL coach really doesn't need to motivate. He just has to have a scheme, and, and that's usually the difference maker. Uh, he also has a personnel department that, for the, I mean, most teams, obviously Belichick does a lot of his own and all, but for the most part, uh, as an NFL coach, it's your scheme, and what separates you is very very small because you have very similar talented players. Obviously, the quarterback position, if you have a good one, changes uh, that a lot. But in college, I I mean, you see the most successful teams consistently have uh, the most players that are going to the NFL, the best players.
2: How different is the locker room environment? This is sort of a tangential question, but the locker room environment in the NFL versus the locker room environment in college.
3: Yeah, you don't well, in college, you basically spend every minute with the guys um, that you've come in with and you're there for at least three, four or five years Where the NFL, it's you know really a revolving door. it's about you know thirty percent turnover every year. Um, guys already have families. And what they're playing for really changes as you get older. Um, where in college, you know, especially for me, all my best friends for the most part have come from the guys that I played with in college. we spent. You know, every day together, um, you spend so much time working out together. And it's really almost a 365-day thing in college, where in the NFL, you're there two months in, in the offseason and, you know, five months for the season if you make a playoff run, six months. Uh, so I'd say the college locker room is a lot closer. But, you know, the more successful NFL teams are ones that are able to keep a core together and, and have – a really good camaraderie with uh with each other.
2: And how hard is it as a kicker to sort of feel like or be brought into that team environment in either league, the NFL or college? Cuz I think there's this thought I have, that kickers are sort of like this weird spress-less fringe player. They practice on their own. They're like kind of a part of the team, but maybe the team looks at them and doesn't really include them. Is that accurate or inaccurate? It depends on the team. Like what is what is that like?
3: Accurate on the pro level because on the pro level we're all again so much of the pro level comes down to money and guys understand how hard everybody's job is and how hard it is to get there so people understand you know how hard it is to kick or punt or long snap in the NFL and you know they appreciate that um where in college you know you're younger you're 18 years old and you just see these guys sitting with all their helmets on on the other field playing games off on the side While you're practicing for three hours and having coaches yell at you um so in college it takes a little bit longer I think to gain the respect of of the guys but in the NFL everybody has a mutual respect for everybody
2: (laughs) that's what I picture was the was the story about you guys are playing games on the other field why the other guys are working hard and there's like this animosity but uh but no, it is cool, like you mentioned, to to see that, and I think you see that on Hard Knocks every year, where it's like you know these NFL guys really understand just how hard it is to make a roster. It's been a it's been a, a neat thing, I suppose, to have this underlying brethren of of people sort of competing for one of the most competitive jobs on the planet. All right, with that, we're gonna take off your sort of player slash ask you some questions hat, and we're gonna bring you into the full co-hosting role and we're going to start off by talking about your thoughts on the Florida job Alan and I have talked about this job we asked if it was a top 10 or top 5 job last week I'm not going to tell you what we said but I want to get your thoughts on whether you think a is Florida a top 5 or top 10 coaching job right now
3: from what's available or from just an entire college football
2: entire college football
3: um, I'd say it certainly is top ten and should be top five. Um, you know, it's far as I mean, I think Alabama, you, you look at the schools that have the most history, you know, from the beginning of college football, really, you probably think Alabama, Ohio State, maybe uh, UCLA and USC. <coughs> Sorry. And, um, but... I, you know, right now, I think with as much success and as much talent as that's in Florida, it's uh, you know right on the cusp of being a top five job.
2: Now the facilities we talked a lot about last week as well, but the facilities have been have been largely slammed by the media, by pundits, by what you would consider to be impartial observers. You've been a part of the facilities, of course. We know that you can't necessarily speak freely as a former player of the program, but in softer terms, are the facilities? truly lacking that far behind, and and does that matter to winning games on the weekend?
3: Right. So I think once you're actually there, it doesn't make a big difference of the facilities, but the one thing you have to realize is what separates a university, from one university to another, to a uh, big recruit isn't much. Obviously, you can't pay the players, and unfortunately, I don't think that many players... (laughs) probably including myself being guilty of this, uh, really look into the academics enough to really separate a school. And, you know, if you look at, say, Florida against Kentucky, and, you know, there's, there's a big gap between the type of program that is, and therefore I don't think facilities make a big difference. But when you start to choose between a Florida, Florida State, Alabama, and Clemson, then really small things uh, begin to factor in. You know, for instance, at Clemson, having a slide to go down instead of going down steps, is it necessary? Absolutely not. Does it make you a better football player? No. But it shows that the school cares, uh, you know, about you having a good time and, uh, and that they're going to invest in you. And, you know, as, as crazy as it sounds, I think it does make a difference.
2: Yeah. If you haven't seen the Clemson football facility, you should definitely pull it up on YouTube. It is. It's like every college kid's dream. It's like a mini putt-putt golf course. It's got just insane, insane things in there, which prompts a whole nother discussion of like just how much money gets pumped into the quote-unquote student-athlete environment. But that's a different podcast for a different day. Uh, I wanted to look at, Caleb, some win rates. And so I, I was thinking this weekend about how something I've said recurring on this pod is that at these top 10 schools, which I certainly think Florida is, you mentioned some of them, whether it's Alabama, Florida State, Georgia, LSU, uh, Ohio State, so on and so forth, you're always one coach away from being relevant and extremely good. And and I think this holds true, especially if you look at the data. I want to give you an example with with the University of Florida. Zook, Muschamp, and McIlwain, their win rates, respectively, are Zook at 62%, Muschamp at 57%, McIlwain at 61%. If you were just to freeze that and say the modern history of Florida is those three coaches, Florida is not a very good football program. In fact, it's the definition of middling. You could do the same exercise at other schools like Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, pick whatever one you want, and you're going to find the same thing. The average coaches that kind of get to this level and can't handle it have a win rate of somewhere between 55 and 63%. And then something very interesting happens when you look at the ones that are, that are elite, which we've covered a lot this year as well. Spurrier's win percentage, almost 82%. Urban Meyer's win percentage, almost 82%. Bear Bryant's win percentage at Alabama, 82.4%. Nick Saban's win percentage at Alabama, a ridiculous 86.6%. So there's this huge chasm between the guys that can do it and the guys that can't. And I think what makes a top 10 program is if you're winning at 82%, can you win national championships? And the answer at Florida and Alabama and these top 10 schools absolutely is yes. Now the question that all of us really are focused on, and we're going to spend the majority of this pod talking about is what coach do we get? What coach do we look at? Now I have no idea, Caleb, who your list is. I'm kind of excited to see who you're working through and who you're thinking about and who you like. Especially because you played for Chip Kelly with the Eagles, you've got some personal experience there. He's obviously a super hot name as of Monday afternoon, maybe the hottest name. And then a guy like Scott Frost, who is, of course, the other prime target for Florida. Uh, but I do think Florida is just one coach away, and therefore a couple of seasons away from being a top five program yet again. Uh, and and with that, and with that, Caleb, let's let's have a discussion on the current state of coaches and, and Scott Frost has been a guy we've talked about a lot. Do you think that he's out of the coaching search? Is this a guy that's sort of just no longer here or are you believing when Strickland says, I want to wait until the end of the season for these current college coaches who are coaching?
3: Yeah, I think he's definitely still in the discussion. And I think if you do have time, uh, it would be nice to see how he finishes the season. I think you kind of see how he's going to deal with the adversity of being in these talks with Florida and Nebraska right now um, and how he's still able to coach at, uh, at UCF and how they do you know, over the last two or three games and their conference championship and uh, you know how they do in the bowl if he, if he makes it there uh, that far. Um, because when, when you coach at Florida, you're going to deal with a lot of adversity, as you can see with uh, Coach Mack and Coach Muschamp. You know, the media is tough on you. Uh, the expectations are high, so I think uh, it'll be it'll be good for him to see how uh, you know he deals with it, how his players you know react to everything. It's always tough as a player at a school like that, knowing that when you do well, your coach uh, might leave. Uh, but I definitely think he should still be in it. Obviously, Coach Meyer came from Utah, maybe a little bit bigger of a school, but uh, um, still kind of a similar story.
2: Now, if you're Strickland and you're dealt this hand. And this is the hand as of Monday, November 13th, the rumors are saying exists. Chip Kelly, right now, wants to sign a contract with Florida. He's ready to sign. He's negotiating particulars about his role in recruiting and his role in boosters, two things he is on record not liking. The Gators, as far as I still know with the rumor mill, are very interested in Scott Frost. Scott Frost is in the middle of an undefeated season at UCF and would not have any of those discussions until after the season, which would be the second week of December. If you're Strickland, Caleb, how do you handle this? You've got Chip Kelly reportedly really wanting to sign. That's a bird in hand, maybe. And you've got Scott Frost, who's a guy I think you've really been targeting, saying I'm going to have to wait until the end of the season. What's the what's the right move here?
3: I mean, that's why uh, the athletic director makes the big bucks, I guess they say. Uh, and I don't know if there is the easy answer. I think you have to go with your heart. If you really believe that uh, Frost is the guy, then you wait it out and uh, you take your chances. But if you believe uh, Chip's the guy, I think you sign him right now to basically whatever he wants. I, I don't think there's going to be anybody that's going to be upset uh, with the Chip Kelly hiring, especially you know, seeing his success. Uh, in the college, uh, in college football, and how many jobs he's probably turned down already. Uh, if, you know, if he were to take Florida, it shows just where Florida is on the national stage.
2: Yeah, there's definitely an instant legitimacy that comes, and I think there's two narratives that I'm stuck between right now. I'm getting a lot of the same sources that that told me that Macklin was getting fired that we talked about in the podcast that week are saying Chip Kelly's the guy. The ink is almost dry. It's probably going to be announced by Wednesday depending on when you listen to this podcast, this might already be solved. But as we sit right now on a Monday, it feels like there's really only two narratives in this sort of Frost versus Kelly battle. And it's that either Scott Frost is our top target and Chip Kelly is someone we're seriously having discussions with, and Chip Kelly adds additional leverage to Frost, which clarifies information from his camp. So when we're talking to his agent, he's saying, hey, Frost is highly interested. It's worth the wait. Or he's saying, hey, and we're not really sure. That would sway the decision for me. If I'm Strickland, I would have to very carefully consider what kind of information is coming out of Scott Frost's camp. And if it's not a bunch of warm and fuzzies that Scott's very seriously considering the Florida job, I'm not sure that you can wait, especially when a guy like Chip Kelly is saying he wants to come. One, because of how it affects recruiting. And two, because the very, very real chance that a guy like Scott Frost does not come to your program. You lose out on a guy like Chip Kelly for whatever reason, whether it's ego, whether he didn't want to wait for it, whether it goes somewhere else. You've got a problem on your hands. And Caleb, I want to walk through Chip Kelly. And before we talk about Chip Kelly, the person, which I'm going to rely on you for, I want to talk about Chip Kelly, the coach. There's seemingly been a lot of interesting disconnects from Gator fans about how Chip Kelly is maybe either not a great guy or he's got some issues or who knows if you don't want them. I'm not sure that's the case when you research what exactly happened. And let me start by talking about the recruiting violations. The recruiting violations that occurred at Oregon were singular in nature. It had to do with one coach paying one guy named Willie Lyles, who was a seven on seven coach, essentially, paying him for information that really wasn't even good information. The result of that scenario was Oregon lost one scholarship a year for three years which is a very small slap on the wrist. Kelly wound up taking the blame, and the NCAA found Chip Kelly to be completely unaware. They said that he was not involved and he was unaware. He did not himself commit any infractions. So essentially, the infraction he did commit was not being able to monitor a coach. But this is very different than what you're seeing, oh, for example, at Louisville Basketball with Rick Patino, or where you've seen where other coaches are actually complicit in what is going on. So I think as far as Chip Kelly getting through the vetting process, that's not going to be a problem. And there's plenty of articles written, even at the time the infractions came out, that Chip Kelly actually took the fall for this, was very direct about it, and essentially didn't do, in the opinion of many authors, anything wrong, of course, on his own, and they NCAA agreed. So there's that. So I'm not concerned about that. Secondly, there's his resume. Chip Kelly took over as offensive coordinator in 2007. For an Oregon team that was already scoring a lot of points. They were 32nd the year before he got there. In his two years as OC, he took them to 11th and 5th in points scored, respectively. His first year, he worked with Dennis Dixon, who was a three-year player and quarterback who really was more more or less a bust. One year, one year of working with Chip Kelly, he wins Pac-10 Offensive Player of the Year and was a Heisman Trophy candidate, just in one simple year. He then goes on to be the head coach in 2009. And all he did during that four-year span was finish 7th, 1st, 3rd, and 2nd in points scored. He went 46-7 and as a college football coach, giving him an 87% win rate higher than even Nick Saban's at Bama thus far. He won his Pac-12 division all four years. He won three Pac-12 at that point in time the Pac-10, conference championships outright. He had a BCS championship game appearance where he lost to Cam Newton. He went to a BCS bowl game all four of his seasons. He was the AP Coach of the Year. I don't know what else you want out of a resume, Caleb. But if you look on paper, there is no better coach. And I think here's the litmus test: say to yourself right now, if you're a t- if you're if you're a Florida fan, you say Chip Kelly tomorrow signs as Tennessee's head football coach. How does that make you feel? Because it would scare the heck out of me. Think- it would scare the heck out of me, right? I mean, how, how does that make you feel as a Florida fan, Caleb? I mean, if in general, is there an argument for us not to take Chip Kelly here?
3: Yeah, I think uh, knowing if he wanted to go to Florida first and because he was upset and ended up going to Tennessee, I think a lot of us would be sick about it. Um, you know, he's, he's proven that he can coach and he's proven that he can recruit. I mean, if you're getting players to go to Eugene uh, from you know Texas and California and all, I'm sure in the state of Florida with so much talent, you can get guys to come play for you. And not only that, I mean, his guys have been so successful – at getting to the next level, um, you know I don't know why you wouldn't want to play for him. Um, you don't you don't come across a coach like this that's available very often, and I think if he's available, you have to bounce on him.
2: Give us some thoughts on Chip Kelly, the man. You've actually interacted with him. He was your coach. A lot of the the negative narrative on him is that he's hard to get along with. People aren't going to like him. He's going to be like Jim McElwain, this sort of unlikable guy that either gets in trouble or just sort of ticks everyone off. Is that accurate?
3: Absolutely not. I I think, I mean, he's one of the best, uh, one of the best men I've I've ever uh, met. Uh, Very true to his word. um, And will stick, stick up for his guys, do anything they do. Now he is, um, he's got his way of doing things um, and he sticks to those. And, Um, but I think that's so good for the college level is, you know, he has, um, certain rules and certain things he expects of you. And if you really look at the most successful college football coaches, uh, Urban Meyer and Nick Saban, uh, I don't think you necessarily will, will sit down and have a super long conversation with those guys and necessarily enjoy it, but you have a certain level of respect for them. And. Uh, you know, the way they go about doing things, their, um, you know, their track record of winning. And I think he brings that to, to no matter where he goes, and guys are going to want to play for him, even if they don't have a super cozy relationship.
2: I'm sure you've encountered players that played for him at Oregon. What was their commentary on what it was like to play for Chip, the college football coach? All
3: right, yeah, the players at Oregon love playing for him. Um, you know, I think he, again, I think he's a guy that sticks up for the players and really got the players just about anything they wanted and put them in the best pos- position to win game and go on and play at the next level. And as a player, you really can't ask for much more than that. Uh, you know, having the opportunity to showcase yourself for the next level and giving you everything you need as far as in the weight room or the training room for the preparation to get there. And he's big on all those things, which is so big in college football.
2: Now, you had a time where you struggled under Chip Kelly. I, I remember a quote that he sort of endorsed you through a back door. Hey, Caleb is struggling. We've looked at the kicking market. We can't find anyone better, so Caleb Sturgis is our guy. During that time and the handling of that sort of situation, uh, which maybe some on the outside would say is icy, it sounds like you're saying this guy's a direct, solid guy. And, and whatever he said to the media, he probably had already said to you directly in a way that was saying, hey, we need you to improve your play or whatever the case may be. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at, is that with the players, he's going to shoot you straight, there's not going to be any BS, he's going to tell you where he stands, and whether you agree or disagree, you at least know what his thoughts are?
3: Right, absolutely. Um, you know, you, you don't want a guy that tells you one thing, you know, he loves you, all this stuff, and then he goes out in the media and it's a completely different guy. He's going to say it to you of, you know, you have to improve, you have to be better, and especially at the professional level, you know what you have to do, and I, and I knew I wasn't playing at a high level at that time, and if they did replace me at the time, they would be fully warranted to do that. But, you know, he was straightforward with me that, hey, we, we liked you because we thought you were the best guy, and we need you to go out and prove it, and if you don't, there, there's not a spot here. And I, and I have so much respect for that, and, um, you know, I, I think it's a little bit tougher with guys are younger, 18 to 22 in college, uh, so you, you have to and maybe tailor the message a little bit more, and it's in a different environment. But you know, I, I haven't talked to one guy, at Oregon, that disliked him. And I and I'll and I'll say this too about uh, you know Coach Meyer and Coach Saban is I, th- I think you get mixed reviews on those guys. And the majority of it, the guys that were very successful at the programs, are going to have good memories of those coaches, and the guys that were not successful are going to have bad memories of them.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point on human nature. And I think that's been coming into a lot of my conversations is the best generals, the best leaders in life are going to be divisive by nature. And it's not because they're dividing people. It's because the success or what they demand of you is going to sort of create the haves and the have nots within the program, which is really, as you're mentioning, sort of a story of life. And the wise people, I think, recognize they do their best. They compete as hard as they can. If they win the job, they say, hey, that's great. I earned this. And if they don't, Uh, They either recognize that they gave all they had and they weren't the man for the job uh, or they sort of take on this bitterness mindset where it's the coach's fault. It's the scheme's fault. It's somebody else's fault. And I think that's that's prevalent. Now, the question to be asked with Chip is he comes into the NFL, he comes into the Eagles after leaving Oregon and kind of lights the world on fire. You go to the playoffs right away. You win a playoff game. You lose a heartbreaker in the second playoff game. The next year you go 10 and 6 again. Don't make the playoffs. They give him full power to be GM. He makes a bunch of very questionable trades where he trades LaShawn McCoy, trades Nick Foles, sort of like head scratching scenarios, gets at odds with the owner. And then in year three, unceremoniously is, is sort of fired after that. So, what, Caleb, do you think led to his sort of super quick falling out in the NFL? And are you concerned that he might shine really brightly as a Florida coach and in year three have the same kind of trajectory?
3: I think when you uh, when you hire a guy like uh, coach Kelly, you know you kind of have to let him take the reins of uh, of the program and you have to trust in, in what he's trying to get done and NFLs NFL is tougher because again uh, like I said with the recruiting and all in college I think the best talent it wins games and Losing some of those players uh, makes it tougher to win. You have to coach that much better than the next team. And, you know, Sam Bradford went down for a few games that year, um, had a few injuries. And in the NFL, things can go south really fast. And then all of a sudden, what what you're doing gets questioned even more as far as letting talent go. I mean, you look at the Giants this year, and, you know, last year, won 10, 11 games and go to the playoffs. And everybody thinks uh, Coach McIntyre was one of the best um, in the business and this great young hire. And then this year they've won one game. They've had some injuries, obviously, at the receiver spot. And nobody thinks he can coach. And did he really change during that time or was it a product of uh, you know personnel? And uh, you know, for, for Coach Kelly, I think a lot of that um, is what happened with the Eagles. And some of it – is on him because he did take over the personnel department and and made some of those moves, therefore bringing more, uh, you know, weight down on weight down on him when uh, you know, when we started losing games. And but how how many times in the NFL do you see a coach get fired after going ten and six, ten and six, and I think seven and nine? Uh, but when when you're in charge of both, it's much easier to take the blame.
2: Yeah, that that is absolutely true, and and one Nick Saban comes to mind. I'm a Dolphins fan, grew up a Dolphins fan. Saban goes eight and eight, spends two straight months saying he's not leaving the Dolphins, and he leaves the Dolphins and goes back to Alabama. And I think we all know what he's done there. Is the Chip Kelly story similar? I don't know. Certainly, Nick Saban didn't coach the 49ers, which have been a, a revolving door of coaches and bad players for a while, as you mentioned on the personnel side, where Chip went. You know, I think two and fourteen. I don't think that tarnishes at all for me, but I want to get your your rank on the top five coaches. And I think right now everyone knows we're we're super zoomed in on Chip Kelly and Scott Frost, and so we'll focus like we have our sort of time on there. And I'm gonna I'm gonna jiggle my ranking, but I'll give you what I had last week five to one. I want to hear what you've got five to one. I had Fuente from Virginia Tech, Mike Gundy, uh, partially because I just love the mullet and I love how many points they score, and then I had Matt Campbell of Iowa State, who had another really great showing in a super competitive game uh, over the weekend against Mike Gundy. Chip Kelly was number two for me at the time, and then Scott Frost was number one. Allen did not have Chip Kelly in his top five at all. It's a shame we can't raz him this week for that. But give me the Caleb Sturgis top five wish list for the Florida Gators, number five down to number one.
3: Right, Uh, I'll I'll give those, and uh, definitely want to hear from you on whether you think they're the best uh, scheme coaches or the best in recruiting, because for me... Uh, really just comes down to who I think is going to bring in the best players. And therefore, number one, I'd go uh, Chip Kelly because I, I think he's going to bring it. Or sorry, I'm, I'm starting to have five.
2: So, <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, Spoiler alert. Number, number one is Chip yeah, Kelly. All right. Yeah,
3: right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to go back there. But uh, number five, I'm going to go Gundy. I just think uh, the mullet flies a little better in Texas than it does in Florida. Uh, we already kind of have a bad reputation with the uh, jean shorts and stuff like that. I don't <laughs> They might be tough getting some South Florida kids and all to uh, buy into that. But uh, then I'd probably go at number four, uh, Fonte with Virginia Tech. They've kind of fallen off a little bit lately. Um, Number three, uh, with Campbell, I really like uh, what Iowa State's done this year. I don't think that's the easiest place to sell kids to go to. Uh, So if you're successful at Iowa State and can recruit there, I think you can probably recruit anywhere. Uh, Number two would be Frost. Again, what he's done this year has been unbelievable. Obviously, he's got a lot of the Oregon staff too, so I think him and Coach Kelly are going to be similar uh, type candidates, and I think both guys can recruit. But uh, Coach Kelly's scheme I think has worked both at the college and professional level, I think, on top of the recruiting He's probably the best offensive coordinator out of uh, any of those. And, you know, obviously, of Florida, that's what fans have been begging for for the last 10 years.
2: Yeah, you asked an interesting question there is, is, is it what matters more? And we actually asked this last week. Is it is it sort of recruiting? Is it scheme? Uh, what is it? And, you know, both Alan and I had put scheme first, recruiting second, partially because of the state of Florida and the fact that really, unless you're a horrible recruiter like McIlwain was his first couple of years, you should get top 10 talent. Now, what's interesting about Chip, Caleb, is that he's he's on record saying he absolutely hates recruiting like he hates it, never wants to do it, can't stand it. Yet at Oregon, he did pull in nice classes, especially for Oregon. He was not recruiting at the elite level. I think, in fact, the knock on Oregon teams that they did not have enough of the top four and five star talent, not enough of the size, not enough of the guys to compete with the SEC teams. That is sort of the knock on chip. Now, the question I think you're answering is you're saying at Florida, just the name of Chip Kelly is probably going to get these players so excited that he's coming. And so is that sort of what you're hinting at? You're not saying that Chip Kelly is such a charismatic, magnanimous guy that he's going to go out there and beat the streets and do what Urban Meyer and Jim Harbaugh do. You're saying that Chip Kelly is such a good coach, his offense is so exciting, that he'll be the CEO and build a program, either keeping recruiters on staff or whatever the case may be, that will therefore get the top athletes. Is that kind of what you're articulating?
3: Right, absolutely. Now, I think one thing that made uh, Coach Meyer... You know, the, be- the best that, uh, you know, while he was here and, you know, for a certain period of college football, uh, you know, before Nick Sa- Nick Saban's the best now. But I think, uh, you know, between maybe 2004 when he was at Utah all the way up until 2009, Urban Meyer was the best in the business. And uh, it was because of his recruiting and his relentlessness. But I don't see, and I don't know this for sure, but I don't see uh, Coach Saban being – a guy that really sucks up to 17-year-old kids or anything like that. I think he's a guy that walks in the door and by the time he leaves, you say, well, I mean, he didn't praise me or anything like that. But you know, why would I not go play for that guy? And I think Chip brings the same thing when he comes into a room as when he leaves. Even though you know, he didn't t- tell you everything you wanted to hear, or he didn't give you, or he didn't, you know come visit you at your school as many times as another coach, you realize uh, just how bright of a football mind he is, and you'd really be hurting yourself by not going and playing for him.
2: Yeah, I think there's definitely a thought of who can make me the best, and that's why guys like Ron Zook, who are legendary recruiters, can't get it done. Uh, And maybe Will Muschamp can be lumped into this category. And I think, for me, if you're finding yourself still saying, hey – I want Scott Frost. Let me give you some insight into my thoughts. I had Frost number one last week. I mentioned all the reasons why you should absolutely talk to Chip Kelly. And if he's interested, you must have a serious conversation. Well, guess what? A week has gone by. We now know that it seems like Chip Kelly is not only interested, he wants the job. This has been an information flip for me. Uh, If you would have told me in September, when I was already pressing the fire Jim McElwain button after a couple of games on film that we could have had Chip Kelly at the end of this year. I would have said, get out of here. Don't sell me this. We can't have nice things like that. That's a dream. And that has become a reality. And I think it's important here not to have cognitive dissonance as a fan and say, well, wait a minute. I kind of just fell in love with Scott Frost. This is what we all heard about. Chip Kelly created Scott Frost, right? Chip Kelly is the one that brought him onto the Oregon staff. Scott Frost runs Chip Kelly's stuff. Chip Kelly is, is the mentor of, And Scott Frost is the student. Now, sometimes in the movies, that sort of flips the script on itself. But as we know from Nick Saban, generally the father whips up on the son all the time, right? This is like a recurring theme. So, coaching wise, I think you made that argument, Caleb, that Chip Kelly is probably the best available offensive coordinator in the game of football. I think that's accurate. He's also sort of the father, so to speak, of Scott Frost, and he's also proven himself in every way you possibly can. So the only hang-ups on on Chip are he could leave early. Legitimate concern. He could get an NCAA violation. I think that's very unlikely, given what I'm hearing you say about him and what I've read about him. Uh, Or he could maybe just hate college football enough it doesn't recruit well. Well, I think like what you're saying is, he's such a huge name. His style of offense is so sexy, so to speak. Probably not a huge concern there. So to put Scott Frost above Chip Kelly is almost the hope that Scott Frost might stay at Florida forever where it feels like Chip Kelly won't. But I can assure you one thing. Very few people thought Nick Saban would have stayed at Alabama as long as he did. You just don't know. Chip Kelly is 52 years old. He's bombed out of the NFL twice. Maybe his heart is still there. But if he takes this gig with the Gators and four years go down the road and he's crushing it and he's 56, who's to say Chip Kelly doesn't have 10 more years of Florida? We don't know. But even if he left, like I said last week, four years of Chip Kelly gives Florida a top-five program, at least during two of those years, let's say we need a complete rebuild, at least during the last two years, uh, you're certainly super competitive, and I'm not sure you can say that about any of the other coaches on the staff.
3: I completely agree, and uh, I think uh, the mo- one of the more important things uh, with any of these five guys, especially uh, with Kelly and Frost, is going to be uh, who they bring on to be their coordinators, obviously offensive guys, and and we've seen, uh, you know, especially with Muschamp being a great uh, you know, defensive coordinator but never could get the offense to really complement it, um, how important is it going to be for those guys to find good defensive coordinators if they're the guys to
2: get the job? This question is fascinating to me because I, I fall in this camp, and I don't know where you fall, Caleb, but I fall in this camp where the head coach is so super important that you can't it's you can't just take a guy that does one thing really well, Will Muschamp, Ed Orgeron as a recruiter, and surround them with all-star uh, you know, assistant coaches and win a national championship. Now, we're getting that experiment at LSU. That is the very experiment they are trying. They are taking a very unsuccessful schematic head coach in Ed Orgeron, and they are surrounding him with Dave Arnada and Matt Canada two of the best at what they do. They're paying them a ton of money and they're going for that. So let's keep an eye on what happens with LSU in the next couple of years. They are trying in an orthodox strategy. Uh, with that being said, I think unless you're Nick Saban or one of these fabulously talented elite guys, Bill Belichick, you probably can't win a national championship without either a super transcendent player or a really key coach. Now, Caleb, I'm going to give you a couple here. I'm going to give you Steve Spurrier. I really think that Steve Spurrier does not win a national championship without Bob Stoops. I think Bob Stoops, as we know, goes on to become a tremendous coach to Oklahoma in his own right. That marriage had to be there. That was a necessary thing for those two guys to be able to win. It's been reported, and you were on this team, Caleb, that Urban's staff disintegrated. He lost a lot of that talent, did not replace them with other coaches that were as talented, Team sort of unraveled. So my thoughts are that you have to have key coordinators. And a good CEO, leader, general understands how important it is to have these guys. But I think if you yourself are not a great CEO and you surround yourself with superstar coordinating talent, the synergy of that marriage, at least looking at the data, is typically not enough to win a national title. So to me, they're very, very important but I'm not sure that you can win without getting the right CEO. So you have to have the right CEO and the right staff. But Caleb, enlighten us and me on maybe what you saw in the urban era, because that was a commentary that is often cited. It's that the coaches on the staff diminished in quality and the team went sideways. Uh, is that something you've observed as a player when you have a different staff come in can you like tangibly see that the level of coaching on the field is going down based upon a hire?
3: Yeah, I think uh, losing coordinators definitely hurts. Uh, Coach Strong was a guy that was so well-liked by all the players. Um, and not only so well-liked, just recruited such good players on defense. I think we had probably the most talented defense in the entire country during his time there. And it's tough to say whether it was his scheme or uh, you know guys just wanted to play for him. And having the best players, having guys like Carlos Dunlap, Brandon Spikes, uh, Joe Hayes and George Jenkins. Uh, when, when you have players like that, uh, it's really tough for me to tell is it the coordinator or the players. Um, but but one thing for sure is uh, coordinators begin to be known for uh, you know the way they develop guys or the guys that have played there. And I think for a long time, you know, having Mullen on offense and Strong on defense was a place where guys wanted to go. And when they left, maybe didn't get quite the same guys to come in.
2: And when you're talking about talent, Caleb, how would you address somebody saying, well, wait a minute, Caleb, Georgia pulled in perennial top five classes, the consensus 15-year recruiting ranking under them under Mark Rick was like number one or two, yet they never won a single big thing. Are you saying that if you just get the best players, you'll win, or you're, you're saying that it's like 80% players, 20% coaching? Like, give me your sort of recipe or your allocation for winning a championship.
3: I think it depends on how much better your players are than uh, other teams. I think Alabama, their players are just so much better. And the depth uh, of their team is so much stronger than other teams. Um, You know, all I really know a lot about is special teams. And that's why I kind of will pull from examples. But Alabama runs a pro-style punt in college football. And to me... it it makes no sense to run a pro-style punt when you can have, well, in a pro-style punt, you only have two free releasers. On college football, you're allowed to have as many free releasers as possible. So at Florida, when Coach Meyer was there, there was no time we had less than three and usually four free releasers, making it almost impossible to get a return against us. Well, you do, uh, you know, you take a chance that maybe one gets blocked or something like that, It's, it's tougher to scheme it well I believe Alabama runs a pro style punt because they say we're so much better than you at every position that we don't need to gain a yard or two and punt we just have better players and I think that kind of goes with the way they coach all the way around is keep the scheme simple because you have the best players uh, and the further you fall down in talent level you've got to make up for in coaching and at a certain extent no matter how good of a coach you are, you can't play for the players.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's well said. I, I've been ranting and raving about how I can't stand Nick Saban's floor, as I call it, a floor philosophy, which is just what you said there. Hey, we're not going to do the optimal thing or even try to become the best team Alabama can become. We're going to make sure we try to win the national championship in the least variable way possible. The lowest risk way, if you will, and who cares about becoming the best? It's very, very frustrating. But I think you even what you saw was true against Mississippi State this past weekend. And uh, with that, I want to launch into these national games that went down. This is sort of how we end the first half of our of our show each week. We're going to walk through the national games, and I'm going to start with that one, Bama goes on the road to Mississippi State and escapes with a 31-24 win. Probably an important thing to note if you didn't watch this game is that Alabama is missing their top four linebackers, four of them. Now, Florida, we said before the season started, if we lost one, we were dead, and that turned out to be true. They're losing four. They're all the way down to where they've got a white guy playing on defense at linebacker for Bama, which does not happen often. Uh, not a heralded guy, not a top-level guy, and you saw the effect of that. Mississippi State was much more effective at moving the ball than they would have been, and that goes to sort of your point, uh, Caleb, is that Nick Saban is obviously great at at scheming, and Mississippi State runs an offense he's seen a bunch, and they had a hard time stopping it. Uh, But your thoughts on that Bama-Mississippi State game?
3: Yeah, I got to catch most of the game, and uh, the thing that was most impressive to me was uh, Jalen Hurts at the end of the game. I really haven't been overly impressed with him as a passer. Obviously, coming as a freshman, true freshman, playing last year, and playing well, and I think he runs the ball so well. And when you combine him with the running backs, you can say, oh, we'll let him pass, we'll stop him the run, but that rarely happens. Uh, But he showed late in that game that he can pass the ball too, and if he's able to do that, they're going to be successful. But as you said, um, as the depth, they keep going further into the linebacking core, and I believe, And uh, other places on defense, um, it'll it'll be interesting to see if the offense can keep up scoring-wise because, as we said, they rely heavily on having the best players and not necessarily the scheme of beating these teams.
0: Yeah,
2: that is definitely one to watch. They looked very un-Nick Saban Alabama-like in that game, and that is, I think, due to that depth, which is so, so deep. But when you have a spate of injuries like that, hard to overcome. Washington in a must-win game for them, really a playoff game for them, loses on the road to Stanford, Stanford 30, Washington 22. Chris Peterson, again, going to have a nice season. But if you're a Washington fan, I feel like you've got to be thinking to yourself, we want to be winning some of these games. Uh, and you just haven't been able to do it in the past few years.
3: Yeah, it's, it's tough to watch because I think the Pac-12 is – Fairly strong, but we probably won't get to see how they compare with uh, any of the other uh, big five teams in the playoff. Uh, With two losses for all these teams now, I really don't see any of them making the playoffs.
2: Are you a speaking of a two-loss team? Are you a four-playoff guy or an eight-team playoff kind of guy?
3: Well, answering that question, it's tough to be short because uh, as a former player. I think uh, the actual player gets lost a lot in what's best for uh, the student-athlete. And I think the longer you prolong the college football season, the worse it is for the athlete. So expanding it past that, uh, you'd really have to get into eliminating certain non-conference games every team during the year and play one less game if they're going to have one more at the end of the year. Because you really can't have guys, uh, I think, play three games uh, leading up to in their senior year, when they have to be ready for the combine two months later, I just think that's a lot to ask, and really puts those guys at a disadvantage. Uh, you know, more at risk of an injury closer to that time.
2: Yeah, I'd love, I'd love an A team playoff, and I'd happily trade the games like we're going to see this weekend. Most of these big teams play us against UAB. UAB is actually good, but a whole handful of the Olds Cupcake games. I could do without that, and I could do with an added playoff game. Ohio State, a two-loss team, crushes, just crushes Michigan State. Very surprising result for me here. 48-3. to Thoughts on that one?
3: Yeah, it was shocking to me. I didn't get to catch too much of that game, but I did watch Michigan State uh, beat Penn State last week, and that was no fluke. I mean, I, they really deserved to win that game uh, And you know, seeing Ohio State struggle with Iowa, I thought it for sure it'd be close. You know, I've, I thought Ohio State would win because, again, I'm always going to bet on the best players, and Ohio State has that. But to, at that margin, was shocking to me.
2: Yeah, definitely, just kind of ran away with it. Oklahoma State, the Coaches Bowl, if you will, here, Mike Gundy and the Mullet, 49 versus Matt Campbell's upstart Iowa State team, 42. This was a tremendous football game. It really feels like Iowa State has no business competing in these games in year two of the Campbell era. They can win close, low-scoring games. They can compete in these super high shootouts. I came away really impressed with Iowa State, even though Oklahoma State won that one.
3: Yeah, absolutely. They've, they've been impressive all year. I mean, the way they—I mean—they beat Oklahoma, who might be you know first, second best team in the country right now. And uh, you know, not only they beat them, they were down twenty-one to seven, maybe 28-14, came back and won that game. I've been in you know every single game they've played, and it's got to be extremely hard to recruit at Iowa State considering you're probably the underdog on all the recruits, even in Iowa behind the I- University of Iowa. Uh, just you know, plenty of credit to the coach and, uh, and what he's done so far.
2: Yeah, and Matt Campbell is sort of the Scott Frost to Urban Meyer's tree as he comes out of that one. So you've got the Chip Kelly and Urban Meyer protégés on the docket for future head coaching jobs at bigger schools. Georgia 17, Auburn 40. My commentary on this one is it just made me smile. It's been a while since I've had to like actively root against Georgia because we normally beat them so easily. My commentary is, hey, I hate Tennessee more. I hate Florida State a lot more. But I was very happy to watch Auburn lay the wood to Georgia uh, and I'm still very impressed with Kirby Smart. I've said all along on the show this year, this is too soon for Georgia. They don't have the talent. And Caleb, you've been hammering that all day. They don't have the talent yet to compete uh, as early as they've been in, given all the recruiting class attrition they had before Kirby got there. But Auburn exposed what a lot of people thought Georgia was going to be exposed for, which was if you stop the run, what could they really do? They run a very simple offense right now. And uh, Auburn obviously... Really proved that, but I, I was happy about it. I did not want to see Georgia sort of keep rolling on. It was it was important for my Florida fandom to watch them get throttled. You know, feel a little pain this season.
3: I Had a little bit of mixed feelings on it. Uh, the SEC East has been down for so long now. I you know I missed the East really competing. Uh, you know, we've lost every SEC championship for how many years now and by how many points. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to see Georgia being back, um, but same time uh you know seeing auburn win this game they've really brought themselves back into playoff contention and they're going to make that iron bowl so exciting and who knows maybe we'll get a rematch of this game later in the year
2: yeah that's what it seems like to me as a football fan you're kind of getting the best of both worlds with this one is that you probably you're going to get the georgia alabama rematch or maybe auburn which we'll talk about in a second uh, but you maybe get more games that mean something as opposed to less. Uh, a team that is playing in games that are all meaningless, like us, Florida State. I saw a sign at the Miami game that got some viral attention where Florida State versus Florida will be televised on Nickelodeon, uh, which is just sort of <laughs> indicating the place our, our 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 schools are at. Florida State, though, very competitive in this game. 17-14 in the fourth quarter. Clemson went on to win 31-14. Uh, Clemson quietly winning a lot of these games and continuing to keep themselves right up there in the playoff conversation.
3: Yeah, it was really strange that they lost to Syracuse earlier in the year. Um, but, you, know, you you have to give Florida State credit for playing hard. Tough when you lose a quarterback, really tough when you lose two. Um, and we, we know Florida better than anybody that if you don't have quarterback play as good as athletes as you have, it's tough to win games, and they're really suffering from it this year. I think they still have a really big talent pool. It's just uh, at that position, it's tough to keep the defense motivated when the offense is going three and out, and it's tough to get the ball to your athletes when the quarterback's uh, not playing up to your standard.
2: Yeah, and that really illustrates the difference between a Georgia team who sort of created a makeshift offensive line that worked and they were able to to protect the quarterback and run a simple offense versus a Florida State team that has an atrocious offensive line and and DeAndre Francois was so good he masked it and they just cannot they cannot get away from it. So when they play these teams that can get get after the passer, they're in a lot of trouble. Uh, TCU twenty Oklahoma thirty eight convincing win. This is maybe Oklahoma's most impressive win of the year against the TCU team that had been playing well and keeping games close. Oklahoma really dominated this game. I think they're announcing themselves as a very, very serious playoff contender and not just to be in the playoff, but to win it all, especially given Alabama's maybe more recent look of mortality.
3: Yeah, I mean, TCU's defense has played well all year. You constantly, Every time you watch, uh, I, I never know if to call them the Big 12 or Big 10 uh <laughs>
2: The big big um, nine now, right? There's only nine teams in that. It's so confusing, yeah.
3: (laughs) Right. Every every time you watch, you know, you kind of throw away the high-scoring games as being, well, the defense is bad. Well, TCU's, their defense has played really well against some good teams. I mean, it just shows how good Baker Mayfield and this offense are, and if Baker Mayfield's able to win a national championship this year, he's going to go down, at least during my time, as one of the greatest college football players I've watched. uh, He's He's exciting to watch. He's putting up ridiculous numbers. And him as a competitor and where he's taken Oklahoma has been really unbelievable.
0: Yeah,
2: he's a lot of fun. He threw a, a nasty stiff arm in that game. And uh, I always enjoy when quarterbacks throw a mean stiff arm. So, yeah, Baker Mayfield, also a great Halo player. I grew up playing a lot of Halo. <laughs> and so I love that he like was so good he could have been a pro at that as well. So kind of just the, 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 every, the every guy sportsman. Uh, The most shocking result for me of the weekend, my beloved Miami Hurricanes grew up 10 minutes from the campus, loved them until I came to Florida, just crushing, just crushing Notre Dame. I think a result that nobody really saw coming. Miami had been playing a lot of close games, throttled Notre Dame. I'm not sure what to make of this result. I mean, I don't want to say that this game was was not a great win it was but I, I still it still doesn't clarify for me where Miami stands because Notre Dame looks so inept in this game uh, and I'm I have a hard time believing that Miami created all of that given how how tight the other games they've played have been but maybe Miami is just progressing at this level and if you're a Georgia fan are you wondering about Mark Rick right now I don't know a re-energized Mark Rick at Miami already dominating I mean what are your thoughts on a, on a very interesting result here
3: yeah there's I have a few thoughts. Number one is, I mean, I think at some point you have to stop discrediting Miami's wins and this was extremely impressive because I thought Notre Dame was a really good team. Obviously, the uh, close loss to Georgia doesn't look as good anymore, uh, but, you know, watching Miami's defense really all year, I mean, they've been fantastic. Um, the way they get to the ball and, and uh, the way they're creating turnovers, you're going to win games when you win the turnover margin the way they do, and kind of looks like the miami of old in the early 2000s where you just don't want to throw against them um so i I, you know i'm I'm a believer in them as far as uh coach rick go goes um you know i think it was best for both schools uh you know it's great for miami obviously to get them but once a coach is in is kind of looked at in a certain way and winning a national championship is his only way of getting out of that uh stereotype it's time for him to go and i i'm I'm glad for him that he's out because I think he is a great coach. It was just never going to work out for him in Georgia. And I think Georgia's, for some reason, it is a tough place to win, and we'll see how Coach Smart does there. And uh, talking about uh, Georgia, let's go to the SEC roundup and talk about the games we haven't talked about. How uh, about Arkansas 10 er, and LSU
2: 33? Yeah, the Ed Ordron experiment is working. That team is definitely getting better. Uh, I don't I don't know that I believe in them. I don't think that LSU is going to be competing at the level they once were, but they finished the season pretty nicely. They were sort of pressing the panic button. Now here they are uh, cruising towards relevancy, staying ranked and and beating a Brett Bielema team that we've chronicled on this very podcast many times just really fell apart. Surprisingly for me, the Brett Bielema tenure is an interesting one. I thought he would have been much better at Arkansas. Yeah, it's
3: interesting leaving uh, Wisconsin to go to Arkansas. Um, you know, he must have thought they had something there that he could win. Obviously, you're going to the SC West, with, which is a gauntlet. and Getting through it is nearly impossible unless you're Alabama and sometimes Auburn. Uh, but yeah, give uh, Coach Orgeron a lot of credit. Uh, it's, it's crazy. I think a lot of LSU fans want him out after three or four games and now all of a sudden he's making a turnaround. He is a great recruiter, so uh, give them a few years. It will be interesting if LSU is able to really compete for national championships here to come. Uh, moving on, Ole Miss beat Louisiana 50-22. to 22. Uh, You know, A game that probably doesn't mean too much in either way. I've really lost track of Ole Miss uh, after the whole scandal. and uh, I, I wonder how long it will be before they're really relevant in the SEC again.
2: Yeah, you, you said it all right there. It's amazing how fast they just kind of fell out of the sky. You go from being relevant Old Miss and Hugh Freeze and a team you follow and just sort of like, oh, Old Miss still played football this weekend.
3: Kentucky 44 over Vandy 21. Uh, you know, Kentucky's put together another nice season for them. Uh, I keep wondering if they're ever going to really make the turn of competing in the SEC against the top teams. I, I do believe it's really tough for a basketball school. And I can tell you will always be a basketball school to compete in football because as, again, going back to recruiting as a recruit, who believes you're, you know, big time. Do you really want to go to a school where you'll always be overshadowed by a basketball player? And I, I think that's something that they're going to constantly fight with.
2: Yeah. Sneaky seven and three season there. But in reality, all that matters is what you alluded to in the previous segment the SEC East, or what I like to call the SEC Least, is just a dumpster fire. And Kentucky's picking up wins against bad teams and barely winning against other bad teams and getting smashed when they play a good team. But that's really the narrative for just about every team in the SEC East. And it's it's unfortunate. You know, I know when I became a Gator fan when I was at school here, the SEC East was the premier division in college, and oh how that has changed.
3: Moving on, we have Texas A M and 55, New Mexico 14. Uh, you know, an easy game for them. a uh, and is another tough team to really put, point a finger on. They played a tough game against Alabama, uh, you know, got a close win against us. Uh, I think their whole season comes down to that game they lost to UCLA in the first game of the year. <laughs> they make you believe for a little while and will always let you down.
2: Yeah, that's that's kind of like the Sumlin era is just it's confusing. And he's still there as of now. If you believe the reports, he's definitely not going to survive the season. I have to imagine that Chad Morris is going to be a guy they target highly out of SMU. He has not been targeted for the Florida job at all. Uh, A guy some people mentioned, uh, Shane Matthews, that was his favorite guy. I'm pretty sure we're not even talking to him. But I think if you're an A&M fan, you spend a ton of money. I mean, just a tremendous amount of money on facilities. You want to win, you want to win now. And Sumlin has given you mixed results. He's been there long enough that it's probably time to move on. I don't know if Chad Morris moves the needle for A&M fans, uh, but I think that this will be the end of Sumlin at the end of 2017.
3: Missouri 40, Tennessee 17. Uh, Missouri's really coming on strong at the end of the year. They prove they can score points. When you can score points, you can win a few games. Uh, you know tough last game for Butch Jones tough tenure overall uh he really had to capitalize last year when he actually had talent and he didn't do that and uh it had to be scary going into this year knowing not only do you not have talent uh <laughs> you haven't won many games before this so it's really only a matter of time and probably was best to, would have been best for him to uh leave this last year
2: yeah i can't believe butch has made it this far and they finally you know ended it for him missouri smashed him, and I think I might even put a typo in there. It might have been 50-17, to but it was just Missouri trending up. Barry Odom was the guy that we thought for sure was gone at the end of this season. He has resurrected this team from the dead. And a lot of credit has to go to him. Fired his defensive coordinator, took it over on his own, made sweeping changes, somehow kept the locker room together. And they're playing very good football now. You could argue they're one of the hottest teams in the country when it comes to these middling teams. And yes, they're beating up on horrible opponents that have nothing to play for. They're sort of just getting coaches fired each week. But Butch Jones finally comes to an end, and Tennessee must pay $13 million to Butch and the staff. Ugh, that's just painful We've talked about buyouts before. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. These schools are paying tons of money for coaches they're ultimately going to fire. But Tennessee, I think, is happy. And now you can kick up the John Gruden rumors into high gear. Even, heck, the Chip Kelly rumors. There's been a lot of that going around, as maybe Chip Kelly would rather go to Tennessee. I can't see why anyone would want to do that. Uh, But finally, the Butch Jones era is over, which means, sadly... Fans like you and I, Caleb, will lose some of his greatest moments like the champion of life and uh, all of the other wonderful things he says that just don't really make sense but, but are entertaining. So uh, that's, that's all there is from last weekend. And now we'll turn our attention to what's upcoming this week, which is the game against UAB. We'll do an overview. We'll look at the film, and then we'll uh, go through some of the national games. And then Caleb and I will play a contender pretender for the playoff teams that are remaining. For your primer on UAB, what you should really know is that they're surprisingly good. They're seven and three this season. Florida's favored by 11, which maybe seems curious. I think before the season, you would have thought that UF would have been favored by 40, but 11, and that almost feels too big for me right now. And in fact, the line I think has moved 10 and a half as I'm speaking. UAB's won three in a row in the games they've lost. They've been extremely competitive. Bill Clark is in his second year which is a little bit odd because his first year was 2014. UAB disbanded its program. So 2015, 2016, no football. And they came back this year. In 2014, Bill Clark went 6-6, six and six, which was their best record since 2004. And this year, they're 7-3, which has already tied a school record for FBS wins. So Bill Clark is doing a phenomenal job at UAB. Probably can't say enough about him there. And uh, the offensive coordinator... Is Les Coning, and in the back you can hear Caleb's daughter Cora. So don't don't worry about that. She's just along for the uh, the third session of co-hosting. But Les Coning is a former offensive coordinator at Mississippi State, AM, and Bama. So plenty of experience there. Uh, they essentially, at this point in time, have a middling offense. They run the ball a ton, sixty percent run, forty percent pass. Passing game is 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 average to to middling at best. Now, on the defensive side of the ball. David Reeves is year one. He's coached at small schools, mainly in Alabama and elsewhere. A below average run stopping and above average pass defense, but they do have a very good turnover margin as a team. So UAB is, in fact, a solid football team. Uh, I'm not sure how this game's going to go this week. We're going to get into it here in a second. Injury-wise, we've lost McCoy for the rest of the season, so now we're down Heggie and McCoy, which is definitely going to be a big loss. It really affected us in the South Carolina game not to have McCoy in there. Caveras uh, Harkless was just struggling all day long. Uh, Malik Zaire's day-to-day, probably not going to play this week, I would imagine. And then Dre Massey is getting a lot of work at quarterback, which is a surprising revelation from Randy Shannon in his press conference. Most importantly, we will once again be missing at least 25-plus scholarship players for this game. So the narrative of sort of the must-champ season, uh, the 4-8 season, rears its head yet again. Film study-wise, on offense, UAB is a spread zone read team. Based upon that run game, they have a sensational freshman running back. It's an All-American candidate in Spencer Brown. He's already rushed for over 1,100 yards. He's number 28. He is the most athletic person on their offense. Uh, he was a two-star recruit, but I think he can absolutely play the part of a guy who can run the ball on our defense. He is solid. Their passing game primarily looks to hit quick east-west routes, as any spread option team would do. And then they look to hit their big plays off the seam routes. So they're primarily making a read on your linebacker. If the linebacker comes here to cheat, on either a bubble screen or a little flare-out pass, they're going to punish you with a seam with a seam touchdown. You see that on film again and again and again uh, as they're sort of putting two guys against one safety. So they do run a very principled offense. It's very similar to, again, what an Urban Meyer would do or others would do with that zone read. Uh, athletically, typically against a team like Florida, they'd have a hard time running it, but given all the injuries we have on defense, it's something to pay attention to. Their defense is interesting. They run a 3-3-5 which very few coordinators do. One of whom does is Charlie Strong. They also run a 3-2-6 on passing downs. And so a 3-3-5 is similar to a 3-4 defense, uh, with the exception that you put an extra defensive back in, as opposed to a linebacker. It's a form of a nickel. But if you see it out there, it will be rather funky to you. Uh, We struggled with this pretty mightily when we faced it earlier this year. So something to watch there as well. Uh, Felipe Frank's not known for making more than one read or a read at all. 3-3-5 Three three five could definitely confuse him, and this UAB defense has been very opportunistic at getting picks. They also blitz the quarterback, and uh, their blitz packages are quite confusing. Out of yet an unorthodox defense, so something to watch there. I have an, an eerie, weird feeling about this game, Caleb. Uh, not only because we're not very good, but because watching UAB on film, although the talent isn't there, they are a sound football team, and I think their confidence is sky high. This would be a, a like an incredible banner win for them even though Florida is so bad it doesn't matter it's just like when Georgia Southern beat us it's a banner win for years to come so they're going to be absolutely excited to play this game and I think our players are are maybe elsewhere so with that Caleb I know you don't know a ton about UAB but if Florida's going to win this game just still even missing 25 scholarship players being a superior team athletically what has to go right
3: well, I think uh, you know the leaders of the team, and I mean everybody just has to, you know, have a sense of pride about this game. Uh, you know, every scholarship guy has to say, you know, how far above these guys was I coming out of high school, and even walk-ons. I mean, if you're given the choice to walk on at Florida or go to UAB on scholarship, it's probably a pretty tough decision. So you have to get together and say, if we lose to these guys, how bad does it look uh, for us? And Um, It is tough going to this game because you have very little to prove. If you beat UAB, nobody gets excited. While they haven't had a football team the last two years, have really shocked everybody with how how strong the first season back they've had. And this win right here could really cement maybe one of the best seasons in program history. So You're you're going up against a really tough uh, battle, so it's going to be really interesting to me to see how players respond
2: yeah, this is who thought this game would be even interesting at a certain level, but it really is. And like we mentioned, it's only a 10.5-point spread as we speak right now. That could even drop further. It's hard to get a feeling on this one. I mean, the keys to the victory are pretty simple. If we stop their running game, they're really not going to be able to score. They they cannot line up and throw passes down the field. It's just not what they do. So if you stop the zone read and you're effective at keeping them from getting third and shorts, they'll have a hard time scoring. And on the offensive side of the ball, this is the team we should be able to run the ball on uh, without a doubt. In fact, they excel in in pass defense much more so than they do run defense. And with that 3-3-5 setup with only three linemen, uh, we should be able to move them. But we're missing two interior linemen. So I'm not sure how I feel about that either. So I'll make the keys pretty simple if uh, we can outrush them. I think we win this game. I think that's probably the only stat you really need to look at is who has more rushing yards, and that's who's going to probably win this football game on Saturday. How many fans will be there to watch it? Who knows? I live in Gainesville. I don't plan on going. This will be the second game uh, in a long, long time, in more than a decade, especially if I'm available in anywhere near the stadium, that I will not be going to. The other one, ominously, (laughs) was the Georgia Southern game, (laughs) where I remember being at Gainesville Health and Fitness, lifting weights as we lost that game just thinking to myself, wow, this has really hit rock bottom. So hopefully that's not what happens on Saturday, uh, but it's now time for prediction. Caleb, what do you think is going to happen this weekend? Score, please.
3: I think Florida is going to score 35 and UAB is going to score 10. I think uh, there's a lot of guys on this team, seniors, that are going to um, get the guys to go. Um, They're going to do it out of respect for this coaching staff. They're going to put on a, a good show for the fans that do show up.
2: Man, 35 would be a dream, I feel like. I think that'd be great. I think Florida does win this game, but I I, I see it being like super close. I'm going to go Florida wins 23-20 uh, over a very spirited and competitive UAB team. And I certainly hope that's wrong. Like I keep saying every week, but it hasn't been yet. We can break our losing streak. So both of us have Gators winning. Uh, maybe that happens this week. And if it does, it sets up for a Florida State week where maybe the least important Florida State game ever to be played between Florida and Florida State, at least in all of our lifetimes.
3: Yeah, it's it's scary to think about. Uh, You know, both teams are always going to get up for that one, but it's going to be interesting. I'd love to hear the pregame speeches for that one. Moving on uh, to national games this week, not too many of them. Uh, Michigan versus Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin's got so much to play for. They've got to be flawless in all their games to – Go undefeated and have a chance at the playoff. Nobody's giving their schedule much respect. Um, I, I think Michigan's going to win this one. Uh, I think this is one win that can kind of somewhat savor uh, Michigan's season. Obviously, Ohio State coming up. I don't think they're going to get that one. At least have one signature win on the year.
2: Yeah, Michigan is eight and two, and it's and they lost twenty. 20- like we well chronicled on the podcast last year, 20 starters or some absurd amount like that. They had a whole new defense starting wise. They just lost basically everyone eight and two. And there's a lot of grumblings and groaning in Michigan. They lost to Michigan state yet again. This would be a game that if they win, as you're, you're predicting, I think Michigan fans would be pretty happy with this season, even if they lost to Ohio state, because truthfully this was not supposed to be Michigan season. So this game, however, is, is Wisconsin season. They played a very soft schedule, as you mentioned. They have to win this game. They're at home. They're favored by eight. This is their whole entire playoff game. I'm going to pick Wisconsin to get this done. uh, Just sheerly because I feel like the momentum of this game for them has been building, 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 building. But it's a very interesting game because I think both teams are looking at this game as a way to define this season. So in a slate of games this weekend where there really are not very good ones, this one by far is the marquee game. So it will be getting much more attention, I think, than it would have if it were on a weekend like last weekend.
3: Virginia versus Miami. Miami's a 19-and-a-half point favorite. Uh, you know, Virginia's been such a tough team to predict this year. They've had some good wins, some really bad losses. Uh, the one game I really paid attention to got blown out by Boston College. Uh, Boston College has looked better lately. Uh, But this could be a letdown game for Miami as well. You're coming off uh, a game against Notre Dame that had so much hype, college game day, and they really left it all on the field. Probably couldn't have played a much better game. Uh, I do think they win this one, but probably pretty close, similar to their games against North Carolina and Syracuse. A similar game to one of those.
2: Yeah, and that's kind of why this is on the slate. is, Is one, Virginia has been Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, but if you get their best game, they can play with you. And two... Whether it's Mark Rick's career as a coach or it's Miami's season this season, this just has a funny feeling about it. I actually think if Miami wins this game handily, I'm probably going to come on this very podcast next Monday and say, Miami's for real. And I think championship teams have a way to be able to come off at a huge like program-defining win. Uh, And not that this is defining Miami's program, but it's like defining the fact that they're back. And then follow it up with the game you should win convincingly. Then, whereas middling teams or teams that aren't quite there yet, they kind of regress in a game like this. So keep a close eye on that one. Miami, you know, nineteen and a half point favorites at home, but worth watching. Lastly, Caleb, I'll prompt this one for you. Scott Frost, UCF, fourteen point favorites on the road against a five and five Temple team. So far, Scott Frost's taken care of business through every kind of distraction there is. Temple is a game challenge for UCF; they could give them problems. Do you think UCF gets by this one unscathed?
3: I do. Um, you know, I think the last two weeks were probably tough on uh, Coach Frost and the and the program, hearing the rumors really swirling. Um, but now that the rumors are that Florida's, you know, really looking towards Coach Kelly, there's probably a little chip on his shoulder, and he wants to prove uh, to the nation, you know, just how good he is, and probably really wants to light up the scoreboard. So I, I think they do win this one handily. It'll be interesting seeing a former defense according to coach Collins and uh in this temple team um they, they, they've had an up and down year so it'll be a good one
2: yeah Jeff Collins the guy that had a super successful run here at Florida I'll be curious to see what he cooks up to stop UCF's offense which has just been a juggernaut looking forward to seeing it I think UCF's going to go undefeated this season it just looks like they've got all the pieces together to win. They don't give you games. They make you earn it. They run the ball tremendously well. And in your talent example, Caleb, they probably are at least not equally as talented, maybe even slightly more talented than most of the teams they play. Uh, but at the very worst, they're equal. And knowing Scott Frost's scheme, you would think they definitely have the advantage with each game that they get into.
3: Now moving on to contender or pretender. Uh, we're going to start with number one in the AP poll, Alabama. Alabama. Uh, Man, you have to say contender for Alabama. Uh, They don't look to be as invincible as you probably thought a few weeks ago. We talked about some of their injuries. Um, They have a really tough schedule here coming up. Um, I think possibly even the best thing for them might be to lose to Auburn in the Iron Bowl. I know Alabama fans would never agree with me on this uh, because I think that's going to give them a free pass to the playoffs. They can get healthy and uh, really compete once they get to the playoffs.
2: Yeah, such an interesting point you make there and i think you're right about that unless some really crazy things happen with the rest of these teams they probably would there's no doubt that alabama is a contender and there's also no doubt right now i think that they're limping in a little bit i think that mississippi state game showed like we mentioned that minus the depth they've they've got some problems if they're healthy and this team is able to do what you just said sit it out until they play those big games in january late december Look out! I mean, I don't think there's anyone this year that can compete with this Alabama team. So if you're another team, you're kind of hoping Alabama stays a little wounded.
3: Coming in at number two is Miami. It's pretty crazy seeing them this high on the on the list. But again, I, I can't uh, you know I can't try to say that their wins aren't impressive, um, especially Notre Dame. And you know, all they really have left is uh, I mean, I guess they have Virginia this week, but. I think that Clemson game is going to be a showdown, and they're going to be another team where even if they lose a close one to Clemson, I think they'll be talk on are they still a top-four team, uh, considering Clemson with one loss has really been considered top-four all year. Uh, so certainly contender, and I think they're going to have a tough time not getting into the playoffs.
2: Yeah, it's crazy to think Miami is doing this well this soon. This is far too fast for them. What remains to be seen is what happens in the next couple of weeks. I think it's all going to be about style for them. This game against Virginia, the game they're inevitably going to play against Clemson, uh, whatever happens, they're going to have to look good doing it. If they lose to Clemson, it's going to have to look really good doing it to keep them in any sort of conversation. I feel like one loss for them just may keep them out based upon the public perception, but you never know. I'm going to put them as a contender, but I'm still not solidifying them. I don't think they're as good as a couple of the other teams that I'm looking at on this list right now. But certainly given their schedule and given what they have to do, they're a contender for the playoff. As if they're a contender to win it all, I don't know. I'm still in the question mark on that one.
3: Oklahoma at number three. I think is certainly a contender. Uh, they've probably been playing the best football out of any of these teams, uh, maybe Miami. But any time a team can score and score consistently, not only on... Uh, You know, teams in their conference, they put up a lot on Ohio State as well. Uh, I think they're the team to beat.
2: Yeah, absolute contender. They're my preseason playoff pick. Uh, If they play defense, they're potentially the best team in this field, which they don't. And I'm not really sure about how that's going to affect them in a playoff scenario. Typically, it affects you negatively. Certainly, in my opinion, the most fun team left in college football that's competing for the title is Oklahoma. And maybe that's why I feel this draw to want them to do well. I also like Lincoln Riley, but I think Oklahoma better than Miami uh, so far and solid contender, I think, to win a national title.
3: Clemson at number four. Uh, I'm going to go with Pretender at this point. Uh, I think Coach Winnie's done an unbelievable job there. When you lose a guy – The quarterback position, like Watson, uh, you're in a lot of trouble. It's been amazing the season that they have put together. The win against Auburn now looks super impressive at the beginning of the season. But I think Miami beats them and maybe even beats them pretty soundly in the ACC championship. And, uh, you know, no way they get in with two losses.
2: Yeah, incredible season from Clemson. And if they don't play a Friday night game, where their quarterback gets injured early in the first half, they're still undefeated. And I'm going to ride what I've been riding with Clemson. Until they prove me wrong, they're a contender. And their one loss against Syracuse is not proving me wrong. It's one loss in two years. They don't look really impressive when you watch them play. Uh, but again, when you're on the kind of heater they're on, you just ride the train until it definitively burns out. It hasn't burned out for me yet. I'm going to say contender, despite the fact that I'm with you. Their style does not look uh lapart at this point in time
3: constant number five made a big move uh you know all they have to do is win out they control their own destiny i've played a pretty easy schedule and they really only i i mean they have a tough one this weekend the big one's going to be in uh the championship game i don't think they get that one done against ohio state i think ohio state is going to uh, you know, be a dark horse, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, to getting into the playoff, and uh, one thing that Coach Meyer's done since he's been there is won the championship games. So I'm, I'm taking uh, Wisconsin as being a pretender.
2: Yeah, I go pretender as well. They can't win a national championship; they're not in that class. Great season. Don't want to take anything away from them. They're a very solid team. You have to beat them. They make you earn it, and there's a lot to be said about that. But I do not think that they're up in that elite category.
3: Auburn coming at number six, uh, pretty wild to see them that high with two losses. But, they I mean, they've been playing probably the best football. The LSU game's looking more and more like a fluke now. Uh, you know, the quarterback play wasn't strong against Clemson at the beginning of the year, but they've really turned it on lately. Um, I think they might even go into the game against Alabama as favorites if Alabama doesn't get healthier Uh I'm, I'm definitely going to contender and they they really control their own destiny destiny to the playoffs.
2: Yeah. They look the part of contender. One of my good buddies, Chris Musgrove, Auburn fan feeds me with constant information on what's going on. Gus Malzahn is such an interesting character. We put him on the hot seat earlier this year. He seems to be way off the hot seat. Now they at times disappear with their offense, but at times they look like they did against Georgia, just an utterly dominating game. Georgia still for me, not quite there yet. I think everything for this Auburn team obviously hinges on their game against Alabama. At this point in time, based upon what you've seen from them and who they have competed against, there's no reason to think they don't go into Alabama game confident that they can play with them. And for that reason alone, it makes them a contender. Fire away.
3: Georgia at number seven. Uh, It's really tough to call them a contender after that bad loss uh, to Auburn this last week. Uh, the talent level is really exposed a little bit. All of a sudden, their running backs didn't have the massive holes that they've had earlier in the year. And uh, coach er, and uh, From, you know, really didn't look the part. Obviously, there's pressure in his face the whole game. Uh, I want to say pretender, but all they have to do is win the SEC championship to get in the four. So I'm really uh, torn, but I'm going to still say pretender.
2: Yeah, it seems like definitive pretender. You can't name a national championship winner who got pasted like that in that kind of situation and the way it looked not happening. So um, for me, they're, they're out nice season still, but for me, they're out.
3: Ohio state at number eight. I think this one's the most intriguing. And if, you know, if I was uh, a gambler, I think I would take Ohio state to make the playoff. And once they get in, they're definitely going to be a contender. Um, you know, I think if, uh, if Alabama knocks off Auburn and Georgia, which, uh, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't surprise me at all. There's only going to be one SEC team. I think the pack 12 is out of it with two losses all the way around. If Oklahoma runs the table, uh, they're going to be the only team. I think that leaves Ohio State if they win out. So I'm going to say definitely a contender.
2: Yeah, the committee loves Ohio State. This team is so weird. I went from saying JT Barrett can't pass, which he couldn't, and they couldn't produce points, which he couldn't, and then he kind of has that heroic run against Penn State, lights them up, then goes against a Michigan State team that has been very good defensively, lights them up, uh, has a crazy bad result against an Iowa team where the defense doesn't show up. This is a weird team. They don't have the look of a traditional contender because of how up and down they've been. At the same point in time, when you can be as up as Ohio State's been at their high points, you're certainly a contender. And like you said, Caleb, the landscape shapes up for them here. This shapes up for them to be able to make a run at this. Uh, and they could make noise come playoff time, especially if the JT Barrett that can throw the football shows up, because any time Urban has a guy that can make competent passes and he has the talent he has, that's a hard, hard team to stop.
3: Going back to Coach Meyer at Ohio State, if you give him time to scheme, uh, he's been pretty impressive. Obviously, the last playoff, maybe not so much when they lost uh, so strong to Clemson, but I really don't think they had as talented of a team against Alabama. In the year they won the national championship uh, moving on the Oklahoma state at number 10 uh, really tough team to, uh, to get a hold of uh, their defense just really isn't stopping anybody I'm gonna say pretender uh, two losses and just the way the defense plays I really don't see the committee giving them a chance
2: yeah definitely a pretender but they're on this list because they're gonna wreak havoc for a contender in Oklahoma either them or the next team we're about to talk about And it would take a tremendous amount of chaos. You're talking about all of these teams losing and being upset for Oklahoma State to ever get back into the conversation. But they could play the role of potential super spoiler in beating Oklahoma in a championship game. And if they were to run out that way, they'd have two losses. They would have beaten Oklahoma. And you sort of get this big mess uh, based upon the fact that the, the big nine, if you will, right? It's very confusing. The Big 12, also known as the Big 9. They play a round-robin schedule. Everybody plays each other. They feel like they got burned last year by not having a conference championship. They put one in now, and ultimately, Caleb, it could punish them yet again because Oklahoma could very well lose to Oklahoma State and this next team we're going to talk about, and that would, I think, frustrate a lot of the Big 12. Uh, So Oklahoma's got a large conference championship game looming.
3: And you talked about it. So coming at number 11, TCU, uh, the way they lost to Oklahoma, really have a tough time saying they're anything but a pretender. But they're the one team that does have a defense that I think can give Oklahoma uh, some problems if they do play them again. You've obviously seen uh, the offense once. Maybe you can scheme something up to stop Mayfield. It doesn't look like anybody in that conference can. But uh, I definitely think it's going to be a closer game if they do get another chance at
2: them. Yeah, and that's the same thing. TCU on this list—they're not; they're definitely not going to make the playoff. I think they have it; they're done. Oklahoma State would have a chaos scenario to get in, but TCU plays the spoiler to Oklahoma, and and they're on here just to talk about the scenario that Oklahoma's got a <laughs> no other team on this list has this kind of situation or this kind of thing to face, where I think you have a quality team that can compete with you playing against you like this
3: at number 14 Uh, this is one I'd you know if they keep winning convincingly and there's a lot of losses at the top it's almost one that I'd I'd like to see but as soon as it happens and they lose big in the first round to Alabama I'm going to be upset that it did happen Um, I'm going to say Pretender, even if they made the playoff I don't think they have a chance but they did make this playoff system I think for a team like UCF to have a chance every once in a while and this is a pretty impressive team.
2: Yeah, definitely a pretender. It would take an amazing amount of chaos to put UCF in over everyone else, given their schedule. If you had an eighteen team playoff, I'd love to see this team play someone because I think one of the most unfortunate things in college football is you get teams like Utah that year where they're special and they're undefeated with Urban, and they don't get a chance to really challenge themselves at the highest level. I think that's unfortunate from a student-athlete perspective. These UCF guys, in my opinion, deserve to lose to one of the elite teams so they know where they stand uh, as opposed to kind of ending the year undefeated, doing everything they could, and just being simply told they're not good enough. Something about that always bothers me, uh, whether it goes back to the the U.S. beating the Russians in a hockey game where they never should have won or any other countless upset in football. Uh, I always want to be played out on the field, but I think that there's a infinitely small chance that UCF makes it to the playoff, uh, and they're definitely not a contender on paper. But again, that's why you play the games. Since the Gators are playing their opening basketball game Monday night, which is obviously before we are going to be done with this podcast, or after we're done with the podcast, but before you may listen to it, after the fact, when it's done, whatever the case may be, I have brought in special basketball guest and my good buddy, Justin Seitz. Some of you will recognize his voice, some of you will not, but he is in fact known for being the opener of the show when you hear the Gator Nation Football podcast that is one Justin Sites Justin used to work for the basketball team he's a great basketball player in his own right but Justin is best known amongst my friends as just nailing the UF basketball team every year I mean this guy has been dead right calling personnel who's going to play who's not going to play even post losing his in influence when he played against these guys and he had experience at practice. He just has a knack for it. So I wanted to help him give us an overview as the season starts on what is a very exciting and highly anticipated basketball season. Justin, let's start by walking through the roster. And we're going to start with some of the guys that we know. And let's just do a little refresher. It's been a year. I'll walk us through the opener that we've lost some guys. So Canyon Berry, Casey Hill, I know your favorite, Justin Leon and Devin Robinson, all of them are gone. Those guys are all gone. Uh, Some of the guys, of course, people know. Kayvon Allen, Igbunu coming back, and then Shioza, maybe the three most memorable guys. Let's talk about those three and what you expect from them this season.
1: Yeah, well, it's good to be on. I I love this time of year um, when football is kind of winding down, especially when you have a terrible team. And, And we have basketball starting up, especially a year when Casey Hill is no longer our point guard. That makes me feel so, so good. Um, But anyways, we're in year three, Mike White, and I think he's exceeded expectations thus far. And I think what this team will have to face this year for the first time is expectations. So I think people expect us to be better, and we'll see how Mike White handles that. But as far as the roster goes, yeah, just starting with those three kind of main guys that you mentioned. Um, this will be, you know, the team will be run by Chris Chioza and he's a familiar face. I think he's gained a little bit of, of lure from that shot that he hit in the Elite Eight against Wisconsin. Um, so I think people have a very positive look at him in their mind. Me, I'm a little hesitant still. He, he hasn't averaged more than 23 minutes a game for the last – Two years so he's really been kind of a guy who gives you good backup minutes and that's definitely going to increase this year i see him playing upwards of 30 to almost 40 minutes a game so we'll see how he can handle the load there's times when he just drives me absolutely crazy because i think he just will play outside of himself so if he can play within himself and really distribute uh, we have a lot of scores and guys who can who can contribute in other ways so i think he just needs to play within himself and then one of those guys, like you mentioned, is Kayvon Allen, who I would say is our best player. He's on a lot of preseason watch lists. Um, and I think if you've watched the Gators the last few years, you can see his ability to score. At times, our, our half-court offense has been you know, stagnant at times, and he's had to go and get a bucket, which he can do. But I don't think we'll rely on him as heavily for that now because I think so many other guys can score that it'll even open up him up more. So I expect even, even bigger things from Kayvon. And then, I think the third person you said was Igbunu, Correct? That's right. Uh, so Big John Igbunu, Um he, if you remember correctly, went down midway through last year with a with a knee injury, and that rehab process has been pretty long. So we won't really expect him to be back until January. So play starts to start. Um, so we really, you won't really get a a good look at our full squad until into January. So. Um, with his addition I think that'll just add increased presence and in defense around the rim, um, someone who can protect the rim and uh, you know, again I'm, I'm excited about this, this team.
2: Yeah Mike White said that Igbuna was the biggest recruit he got this offseason which is a little bit of play on words because obviously he was on the team but chose to stay for an additional year uh, which is going to be a big boost to this team when he comes back assuming he can recover successfully from an ACL three other names we know uh, Kavaris Hayes, who really I thought came on last year. Uh, Keith Stone, who's been up and down all over the place. And then Gorjok Gak, who we got a lot out of it at the end of the year. I think we kind of fell in love with this guy in the tournament. Like, you're like, oh, Gak's out there. What's going on? And then all of a sudden, the guy was playing well. What do you expect out of those three?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you were to tell me that Agunu was going to be gone until January, you know, I would have been hesitant at first. But I really don't think we'll lose you know, a step at all. I think I was, like you mentioned, Cavarius Hayes is primed to take, you know, another big leap. And I think he's the perfect guy for – perfect big guy for Mike White's system. He's a little bit undersized, but he's so athletic. He can rebound. He can guard. He can guard smaller guys. And he can bang with bigger guys as well. So, he's going to be the type of guy who's going to get a bunch of rebounds, block a lot of shots, get some big dunk. And uh, I think, you know, we won't really – miss igbunu too much which is which is a crazy thing to say um yeah keystone so smooth um he has been a little up and down i think this will be his time to really prove whether he can cement himself in the lineup we have some other young talent that can challenge him a little bit so um, he's a guy who can step out and shoot it i think we'll be able to play a lot of like four around one um with four guys who can shoot shoot it from the perimeter and uh, I think we'll be able to have a lot of versatility in our lineup. And then, yeah, Gorjak Gak, um, love the name. And he surprised me as much as you last year. Um, he's capable. He has good hands, good feet. Um, so I think he's someone who can spell minutes off the
2: bench. So before we get into the new additions, of which there are many, uh, some guys that were transfers waiting to play, other guys who are new in and in a solid freshman class, give, give me this simple overview on Mike White's system. We know it's up-tempo. We know that it's wide open. We know it's a system guys want to play in. But as an X to the Nose basketball guy and as our fans of this show appreciate, they really like to learn about what systems attack and how they do it. What is Mike White trying to attack and exploit with his system? And, and how maybe is this year's roster going to do that differently than last year's did?
1: Yeah, well, I think this year's roster is the first one that's been really set up to be you know a lot of what you might see in the future with what Mike White wants—a lot of guard play, um, guys who can guard different positions, but then we just get out and run. It's, it's really similar to kind of the Billy Ball of old. Um, probably playing, you know, more guards four around one. Um, defensively, we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna get pressure. We'll probably press full court a lot. Um, get the ball off off a miss and go. And really um, what you'll see is you're not going to see a lot of sets like Tom Mizo or something at Michigan State. It'll be a lot of just um, pick and roll. Uh, I see, again, a lot of like four-round one. So you'll have like guys like Cavarius Hayes out setting screens, rolling to the rim, and then shooters replacing. So um, that's really what you'll see. I think you'll see a lot of threes shot. And what, what we – have this year which we didn't have the last the previous two years is a lot of shooters who can really space the floor so we want to space the floor um make defenders basically commit to a to a drive and if they do then you can kick and and get a lot of open shots and so far in the preseason we've seen that i think we've had three preseason games and between um i think our best three shooters jalen hudson igor and Um, Kayvon Allen, they've shot like 48% from three. So I think we have a lot to look forward to there.
2: And speaking of the new additions in this roster that is more well-suited to what Mike White's lots of athletic guys that can shoot the ball, handle the ball. Uh, that's what we've added. I'm going to start with Jalen Hudson, who is an interesting guy for several reasons. He's a six, six guard from Virginia tech. Didn't have great numbers there. The knock on him. He doesn't play any defense, what I want to know is what's the Justin sights what's the Justin sights info on Jalen Hudson?
1: Yeah, well I don't play defense either, so uh, I love him. Um, no, I really I am I am excited about him. I love guys that can score because I think you can teach defense. Defense is about effort, and I think these the coaching staff from what I've heard has just been on him. You know, for basically the last two years because he practiced with the team last year but wasn't allowed to play. But yeah, he transferred from Virginia Tech. I, I think he kind of rubbed. Buzz Williams, the coach there, the wrong way because he didn't really play a whole lot of D. But he is capable of filling it up. Uh, I think in a game like his freshman year at Virginia Tech, he had 32 points against Wake Forest, and he's he's smooth. He's a guy who just offense comes easy. Uh, you know, someone who similar to Kayvon Allen, um, but like you said, I think where where we'll ho- we'll hope to see the biggest strides is on the defensive end of the floor if we can get him to buy in and, and play defense and. That would
2: be big for our team. And the second transfer from Rice, the biggest transfer for us to have gotten, at least <laughs> is what the pundits would have told you, is Igor. And I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I didn't have time to YouTube it. But it's a Kulichov. nice. Yeah, Kulichov. There it is. Nice Russian last name. Uh, but all that really matters is the nickname he got at Rice is is Three Gore. And that is what I will be calling him because that's freaking fantastic. But he's a six-five undersized kind of guy that plays forward sometimes, but he plays bigger than he is. But he can stroke it, and so three Gore. What are your thoughts yeah. on What are your thoughts on three Gore?
1: Yeah, well, too bad we don't have Alan on the podcast today to be able to uh, correct our Russian pronunciation. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Igor Kulichev, um, and then like you said, the name says it all. Three Gore. I mean, he's definitely a guy who's a specialist. He transferred from Rice. He's a grad transfer, so we'll only have him from one year. So we'll enjoy him while we have him. I think he'll be a bit of a fan favorite and a guy who's just a knockdown shooter, um, a la like Lee Humphrey types like that. I don't know. If, I don't want to make that claim, but anyways, he shot 47% at rice last year, which was one of the tops in the country. Um, but he is a specialist. Like I said, he's a shooter. He won't be handling the ball too much. He's a, he's an okay defender, but he does have size. He's six, 200 plus pounds. Um, so it's, the so three gore will definitely be a fan favorite and someone that I enjoy watching as well.
2: Now let's talk about chase Johnson, maybe one of the more heralded guys of our recruiting class, what six, eight, six, nine shooter, athlete guard, maybe in the Chandler Parsons mold. Uh, what, what are you feeling yeah. about chase?
1: Yeah. So I think you hit it there. He's, he's six, nine. He's, he's probably a little bit more physically ready than Chandler was coming in his freshman year. He's a little thicker. Um, and he's, surprisingly athletic and I think that's just a euphemism for a white guy who can really jump um but he's gonna he's gonna be a good addition off the bench he's someone who's athletic he can score um and yeah I I would I think that's a good uh comparison at first I'd heard you know like Eric Murphy but he's he's very different Eric he's a lot more athletic probably not as good of a shooter um but he can shoot and he will be someone who rebounds plays hard and and can give us good minutes off the bench for sure.
2: Deandre Ballard, who is a guard and a, and a, a really maybe prolific scorer, but what are your thoughts on him? Is he ready now?
1: Um, I think that Chase, when you talk about our freshman, Chase Johnson is probably the most ready freshman um, to contribute. Ballard is, he has good size, you know, he's a long guard, six, five, um, but he's someone who is a little bit more raw. Um, but he will, He will. from the preseason, he, he looked good. He's someone who can guard, um, especially when another team has a bigger guard. He can get out and guard. Um, but he, I think he'll be one of those people who, as the season progresses, you'll start to see more and more from him. Um, but don't expect too, too much right away.
2: We've got Mike Okaru, who is a point guard 6'3", Maybe a late bloomer is the tag they put on him, like a project guy could be really great later on in his career. Do You see something similar?
1: Um, from what I've heard, kind of in the preseason, is he's just someone who hopefully can spell Cristiota for a little bit. I don't think he's going to contribute too too much this year, and uh, you know, hopefully for the for the guy, you know, he's someone who could eventually blossom into something. Although Mike White has hit the home run recently with a few guards. Um, for the 2018 class so you know i'm not sure at this point where he fits um, but if he can give us a little bit of you know minutes this year to spell chioza um i think that's the most we can ask of him
2: yeah i think you nailed it there i think they were looking to upgrade that position significantly and they did so in the next class but he does have uh, a lot of people think he does have sort of a uh, prospect talent down the road, which is what you want to do when you're building a team. You got to have some of these guys that, that become good their junior, senior years uh, to fill in your basketball team. So two guys yeah, left, yeah. And
1: he was he was he was a he was a, he was a late get. Um, we had a five star Shea Alexander who ended up taking money from Kentucky, and now he's there. So
2: yes, that hurt. I remember I remember <laughs> us talking FTI about that. Down on them. <laughs> I remember when that happened. That was not a happy time when Shea Alexander left for that that moment. Uh, two guys left here. We're going to go 6'8", Isaiah Stokes. He's hurt, unfortunately. Maybe we get this guy back late January, February. A lot of expectations on him, though.
1: Yep. Yeah, if you remember, uh, if you're a basketball fan, you might remember his brother, Jarnell Stokes, who played at Tennessee. Um, Isaiah Stokes has a very similar game. Uh, a big who's just huge as far as you know his, his ability to take up space. He's not overly tall, but powerful um if we could get him to play anywhere like his brother then then he'd be a good contributor for his career Um, but he's someone who's kind of an old school big He's he's not really gonna get off the floor he's not overly athletic his game is really a lot like his brother someone who can be a force inside move people around with his body and you know shoot a little bit from 12 to 18 feet and uh be someone who contributes but yeah, like you said, he's he's coming off an injury and he's actually gained a lot of weight. So, he kind of looks like he ate like Irving Walker right now. So, he's going to have to get some of that baby fat off.
2: <laughs> he ate too and, many uh, too many tacos okay, at we'll the
1: see.
2: Yeah, too many tacos at the oh, late night downtown stand with Irving apparently. Uh <laughs> Last guy on the list is Dante Bassett. He got injured last year. He's a redshirt freshman. Do You expect anything out of this guy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm this is the one that I really I'm most interested to see. He came in um, last year again, like you said, and he had to sit out. Um, he He's someone who's 6'9". He's got good size. And I think, you know, early on you'll see him get minutes in some of these games that, you know, might not be that close. And And I think the coaches will be evaluating what he can do. In the preseason, he, he did look good. He looked, you know, like he can score. He's capable. Um, I think he shot like 88% from the free throw line. So if going to have a big who – you can also shoot free throws. That's always a plus for your team.
2: All right, so we've gone through the roster. Now what I want to know is the, the nitty-gritty. Does this team exceed last year's performance? So we won 27 games last year. Do we win more than that this year?
1: Oh, stuff Um I think if you know me, I'm, I'm generally kind of a pessimist, maybe more of a realist, but... There's something about this team that really excites me. And I don't know if it's maybe just because football has been so bad and we haven't scored and we haven't seen an offense in forever. Um, But this team's going to be exciting. Um, They're going to score. They're going to be fun to watch. Um, I believe we won 27 games last year because I didn't really think we were that good. Um, But, yeah, I think when it comes to – you never know with basketball, especially when you get to the tournament. You know, I, you can't predict that they're going to go to the Elite Eight and maybe have a chance at the Final Four. But as far as a, a team that will be right there that I think can win 20-plus games, they should win 20-plus games, I, I think they have a shot at, at winning the SEC. Kentucky has looked pretty, you know, pedestrian so far in their first two games. And, you know, I think this this team can win the SEC. I I honestly think that they can be something like a, a two seed three seed in the tournament. And, and then from there, you know, hopefully you make noise. I think Joe Lenardi had him as a two seed in his earliest way too early bracketology. But I think it's a team that no one's really talking about that that much either. It's kind of typical with the SEC. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited about this team. Will they have some some potentially frustrating losses throughout the year? I could see that, you know, based off of um, if we can't defend, but, you know, I, I feel like our team and our coaches will be able to get this team to defend and uh, we'll be able to make good strides this year.
2: Last piece of intel for you. When I look at this team, the glaring weakness seems to be at the point guard spot. She owes us a guy that I love and hate. I think I probably have been on a love train more than you have simply because I have this theory that he he's either throwing games which I shouldn't really put out there given that the NCAA basketball is in a lot of trouble. But last year it's like the guy's just like going to throw a game. He's going to do stupid stuff and turn the ball over and almost looking like he's doing it on purpose. And then he's going to play like a hero. But if Chioza just plays average this season, can we be a team that reaches the elite eight or do we need him to be like an above average player, a guy that's adding value beyond just being competent?
1: No, I I don't think, um, we need him to be, you know, first-team SEC or anything. I We just – like you said, I the guy to me has bi- been bipolar throughout his whole career. And for me, when it comes to a point guard, I just love stability. Someone who's just going to make the good play, who's going to guard and, and get the ball to where it needs to be, um, a la, like, a Scotty him And if he can just do that, that is all we, we need from him. But, you know, we're yet to see that. It's been – like I said, he's, he hasn't – played 30 plus minutes a game so we'll see and oh man if if it if, if, if it doesn't if he doesn't take you know a stride or or, or contribute like he's supposed to contribute then I'm going to be pulling my hair out a lot um but I really do believe that he's going to be someone who can be steady for us um get the ball where it needs to go and not try to be a hero or a scorer and get it to the guys who can score and then if he can just be a pest and and defend people I think He's not quite as good a defender as people give him credit for. Um, He kind of reaches and he he can just play solid. That's all I ask of him.
2: All right. I can't have you on the show without getting your your prediction. The the Gators NCAA tournament run ends in what round?
1: Gosh. Ah. Final four.
2: Oh, I like it. Now, the best thing about this to you listeners there is Justin and I hang out a lot. And the big audible gasp there is he knows that we'll hold him to this. (laughs) So that if the season flames out, he won't hear the end of it. But seriously, that's exciting. Justin is a pessimist, for those of you that don't know, to hear him say the Final Four. Just gets me even more excited for a season I'm already so excited about. I can't like Mike White any more than I do. And on that note, Justin, I'm counting on you to get me a ticket for tonight so I can watch the game in person and on television. But uh, it's been great to have you on the pod, as always. We'll check in with you more as the season goes on, and uh, hopefully I'll see you tonight.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, and everyone who's listening, just try to get out and support this team. Um, I'm excited, and I think just if we can fill the dome and make it a tough place to play at home, that'd be big.
2: And with that, that's going to wrap up Caleb and I's first podcast together. We certainly hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like the content, head to Facebook, drop us a like, follow us on Twitter, or support us on Patreon. We will be right back with you next weekend with another fresh episode of the Gator Nation Football Podcast.
1: I switched the family to Boost Mobile and we got so much more. Like what? Well, we got four free LG Stylo 5 phones, four lines for just $25 per line per month. I smashed up the car and unlimited gigs.
0: Wait, did you say you smashed up the car?
1: Yes, it's completely smashed. But four free phones.
0: Switch to Boost and get four lines for just $25 per line per month. Four free phones with unlimited gigs, all on our super reliable, super fast nationwide network. Boost Mobile, the switch that gives you more. Terms and conditions apply. New customers only. Visit BoostMobile.com for details.